now you know. Podcast magic. Oh, that was it? All right. Just a little... I'm going to warn you in advance, Sydney. Okay. Uh, just audience, we're recording two episodes today, and the other one, oh, my intro God. is going to be uh, uh, end of Rocky movie levels of sweat. Okay. Um, so I needed something simple that required no thinking, okay. no creativity, no anything other than put the word podcast in a thing. Okay. I get it. I appreciate the warning. Um... That was fine. Great. Good job. Yeah. Welcome to the Disney Desk, everyone. I'm Carter. And I'm Sydney. And welcome to another episode of Marvel Minute. We've been on a bit of a Marvel kick lately. Yeah. Um, when's the last time we talked about Marvel? Not that long ago? Two or three oh, weeks ago. When yeah, we that was rankings. kind of like a wild card mixed bag episode, which was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But today we're talking about something... A lot more specific. Um, today we are covering the brand new Disney Channel show, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Yes, it is the brand new Disney Channel original show. Uh, you can watch it on Disney Channel as it's airing. Or uh, the first, I believe, 11 episodes have already dropped on Disney Plus with the final four dropping early April. Um, it has quickly become... You know, as someone who is really big into sort of young adult slash kids animation, Mm -hmm. uh, it has quickly become one of my favorite little shows out and about, uh, especially now that we're in this transitionary phase for Disney Channel's content uh, as Amphibia ends, um, Owl House is about to end, uh, DuckTales obviously ended a while ago at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we are really excited to get into this today. But first, before we do that, it is time for another Internet Minute. Hit the trumpet! All right, what did you bring to the table today, Sydney? Okay. Um, I brought something really simplistic, actually. Um, it's a tweet, because I do spend my time on the Twitter. It's actually a tweet, funnily enough, from someone that we both know. <laughs> Oh, God. Um, this tweet comes... Are we comes naming names? From, yes. Oh, yeah. I'll name his name. Um, I'm sure he'd love it. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he'd love a shout-out, and I will have to let him know that we're talking about him today. Um, this is from a good friend of mine uh, named Peter Fenton. Um, you know Peter. <laughs> yes. From the theater. Um, this is a tweet that he wrote a number of days ago, according to my screenshot folder on February 19th that I have been sitting on since then. And it just says, Colors of the Wind deserve to be in a better movie. No notes. <laughs> and, you know, yes, I, you know, I thought this would be a good opportunity to have like a little mini chat and we've gone back and forth about whether or not Pocahontas is something we feel like talking about in the future. It's gonna, it would be an undertaking to do that. But, you know, I don't know about you, but, like, I have a lot of guilt, I guess, about Pocahontas low-key being kind of one of my favorites. Because it's got a banger soundtrack, and it's kind of visually beautiful, and I wish that... I wish that so many things were different. Um, 
there... Well, if it makes you feel any better, most white people, well, most normal, well-adjusted white people feel at least a little guilty about, um, you know, yeah. what actu- what happened in real life. Right, right. Um, but, you know, one of these days we'll have to talk, maybe, maybe not, maybe we don't have to talk about it, but I often find myself thinking about the sort of beautiful um, sham that is Pocahontas, the beautiful disaster that is Pocahontas. And it's like, you know, I can't even call it a disaster of a movie. Um, you, you know, have a, have a lot more historical perspective about things than I do. And I, so you would have to tell me about how this was received as a film. I assume pretty well. Otherwise it would not, you know, be as prevalent in the canon or like even in the, even as a princess movie, which is what this is. Um, you know, it is inter- it, it's interesting that you mention that because it's kind of in the middle. It is weird yeah. that she gets to be in the princess canon as the one real-life part. Assuming you assume Mulan didn't actually exist, which, you know, probably not. Yeah. Um, like, she is the one, like, real-life princess. And honestly, the critical reception, as I remember it, was, oh, well, that was pretty, but... Mm. Mm. Okay. Like, of that era, that was kind of the reaction to all of them. Um, yeah. It was some level of mm with positives in one direction and negatives in another direction. And even at the time, people were pretty uh, miffed about its um, loosey-goosey handling of Native culture. Genocide, yeah. Um, yeah, it is it is an interesting discourse. I would love to just... This is definitely one I would want to do an entire note sheet and really get into the weeds of. Yeah. But I go back and forth because, like, I know in my heart Colors of the Wind is a pretty good song, but at the same time, like, it's it's complicated because, like, all of the Pocahontas songs sound really, really good, and they're mm-hmm. pretty, and they're well shot, but all of them are just... But if you listen the to the words too hard. Basic, Yeah. <laughs> They, it, bingo. It, it's it's the it's the it's the dear Evan Hansen guy problem, and Mencken's usually way better at that. Cause like, and I I, I tend to complain about this uh, later about something. I don't remember where I was going to complain about this, but the guys who worked on Dear Evan Hansen and Greatest Showman and did a couple songs for um, the new Aladdin movie, the live action Aladdin, mm-hmm. like they are the worst at like these lyrics mean nothing. You're just mm-hmm. throwing metaphor on top of metaphor on top of metaphor. Right. None of this makes sense. Which, like, and this is movie... how white people translate anything native as just being, yes. like, compare it to an animal. Yes. And that is the poetry. That's art. Yeah, I don't... But then yeah. I'm like, yeah, but it, that song still bangs. It is. And it's like, Colors of the Wind isn't even, in, like, my favorite song from Pocahontas. But it, yes, but this I, tweet, mm. like, I was like, there's a lot of elements of this film that deserved a better time and place, a better, a better source material. The damnedest thing about Pocahontas is, well, one, after Beauty and the Beast was nominated for uh, Best Picture, Katzenberg, basically Katzenberg became obsessed with two ideas. One was chasing the Aladdin thing, where it's like, this was the first animated film to make half a billion dollars, more pop culture, more silly, more goofy goose. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's how we get to, like, Hercules, and then eventually, like, Shrek, um, when he gets booted from the company and teams up with Spielberg at DreamWorks. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then the other avenue was like, we have to go in all in on prestige. And fundamentally forgetting that the charm of Beauty and the Beast is it's still goofy and silly. It just is also really well made. Right. Um, and it's weird because that's kind of what, what, not exactly what Walt did, but like with Sleeping Beauty, which is my version of Pocahontas, where I'm like, this is boring as sand, but mm-hmm. like there's a lot of in- beautiful stuff here that right. seems a better movie. I would love to sit down and do both of those together because Walt, that was Walt betting the farm on like, we are going to make the most prestigious, powerful film. Like they shot it on 70 millimeter film, which for film terms is like, I I never know how to explain cinematography, stuff like that. But like, basically it's like wide, wide screen. Like it it just eats the screen. Right. Um, And that also was like, well, this is pretty. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Nice. Right. Okay. Yeah. Maybe we'll put a pin in that for later. Um, what is yes. your internet minute today, Carter? My internet minute is something I sent to you earlier in the week. Um, so, um, and this is a good time to mention, uh, if you tune into our Patreon this week, we will be doing a deep critical dive of the film Hercules. Oh, yeah. And it, an interesting little tidbit about Hercules is the original actor they wanted for Hades was uh, Jack Nicholson, uh, famed for The Shining and the original Joker in Tim Burton's Batman. Um, and a Twitter account called Down the Inkwell, which I've only just discovered and I want to dig into more, mm. um, found a series of drawings back from the day, because like they were really locked in on this, and they did a lot of conceptual drawings of Jack Nicholson, um, Including his very like shaped cheekbones, that yeah. very upsetting grin, and like the really sharp eyebrows. And I'm gonna be honest, and like I I love the current Hades. It stinks that James Woods is who he is. Um, <laughs> certainly, it would be better if Jack Nicholson was uh, Hades, and Hades was known as just being kind of the portly guy who hangs out at Lakers games now. Right. Um, <laughs> but man, I would have loved to see what this guy's deal was. Uh, and yes, I don't want to go too into like, cause I have a whole section for that, for the actual Hercules episode, but I right. will say apparently when he went to the studio, he brought his daughter dress who dressed up as Snow White. And just imagine being a kid that excited to go to Disney, like where they make right. the magic and her daddy being like, sorry, kiddo, uh, I'm not doing the movie. They wouldn't give me <laughs> what I wanted. Just oh, God. imagine your daddy's not going to be in a Disney movie. I'm sorry. Sweetie. Oh, well, Yeah. That means your dreams are crushed. I'd be remiss if we didn't briefly mention the Oscars. Do you want to just cover that like super duper fast in terms of okay. who won? Um, the Oscars happened. Turning Red didn't win. Yeah, relevant to our conversation, Turning Red um, lost to uh, Guillermo de Toro's Pinocchio. And did we talk about Pinocchio on here yet? No, not this one. Right. Um, we've, I mean, I really love it. Yeah, but personally, me too. I, I probably would have given it to Turning Red still. Why? You know, it's, it, and like, this is being, like, of these two flawless Monet paintings. This one is yeah. a little splotchier on, like, the water. Um, for me, it's, like, Turning Red, beca- both because it's such a distinct voice, like, a new voice and a distinct voice. Mm. And it's, like, a pretty big evolution for Pixar as a company. Like, I'm all for, like, awarding... And I guess it's, like, how you award awards. And, like, for me, awards are, like, telling the story of this year. For me, Turning Red's a big part of this year because it was, like, such a focal point of, like, the streaming wars. It was this, like, oh, Pixar's back. Like, they're back, back. 
it was the emergence of a like new voice who's now r- quickly climbing up the ranks of Pixar. Mm-hmm. And Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. And for me, it's as much as I love the film, it is very. I don't know. I guess it's because like I'm like, oh yes, this is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. It's exactly what you would imagine Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. To yeah. Be. Mm-hmm. And. On one hand, I'm like, I'm glad he didn't surprise me, because I'm like, well, the man's good at what he's good at. Don't ask him to be something else. But then I'm also like, well, yeah, but then I'm not getting anything else. Right, yeah. I mean, the parts that I like the most, I feel like, are the parts Patrick Mihale was like the chief writer on. And if you're selling me on, hey, let's give one of the great animation minds who made Over the Garden Wall an Oscar, I'm like, well, hell yeah, that's just, you know, that's just basic logic. He deserves one. He should have one. So, yes, I'm okay with this. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, as much as I am devoted to Turning Red, I agree with this win. Um, which, like, I guess this this Oscar season kind of revealed something that I was not expecting us to disagree about, which is how you, like, see um, awards uh, in terms of, like, what actually should get an award and why. Um, because, yeah, you do see it from, like, a, a, in a, like a culmination of... Of, of a lot of the context outside of the actual story that was told. Yes. Um, and I am looking directly, my, my point of view is like what, like which of these finished products is better. Right. Yeah, which is a perfectly valid way. I noticed that as we were discussing it in the moment, which is like a perfectly valid, like there's nothing wrong with viewing it yeah. that way. Right, it's right, right. Just how I, is because like for me it's like, well, for me, it's all about the story of, like, how do we tell the story of this year? So that's like, kind of skews my opinion. And I also get kind of political where I'm like, well, everything should win at least one or two awards. And this is graded on the curve of, like, I'm fine with everything everywhere all at once eating everyone's lunch. But that's also because I'm like, well, this tells a big part of the story. Um, and, but at you the same also, time, I'm like... Like, I think you you also follow these things a lot closer than I, like, th- like... I don't annually. want to. I kind of hate that I do. It's exhausting. Um, really? Yeah, you it's, hate it's, it? Because I, like, well, that's, I love that's surprising it, I hate to me. It. I'm a nerd, and I don't like being a nerd. I'm a weirdo. Well, I have my yeah, but... I have my crown, and I eat hamburgers. What else does Jughead do? Um, that's kind of it, isn't it? He's a bully? It? It maybe? I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah, he became a bully. Yeah, I haven't kept track. Oh, I just no. found out that Riverdale did a bunch of songs from the musical American Psycho, and I'm like, why? Why was Riverdale ever a thing? Like, we'll have to talk about that one day. I don't. I well, that's a, that's on our spinoff show, Cringe Binge. Yeah, we need to but write anyway, that down. I mean, I would have been happy if uh, nobody like you got nominated and won, mm-hmm. but then I'd also be bummed out because then RRR would have gotten completely blocked that's out. True. And I'm like, you can't. You have to give that something, whether it was best foreign film, right. best song, foreign or language, best yeah. film. It had to get one of them. Um, see, this was giving me, like, this ceremony, I kept mentioning that throughout the night, I was like, this is 2019 all over again, like, this is the Parasite year all over again, where, like, every film nominated was a home run in in, in its own right, and you couldn't really disagree with any of the, like, any of the winners, really, um... That, that's why I hate the Oscar snobs this year being so, like, harump, harump, everything, everywhere, mm. all at once. Ugh, God, this year sucks. There's yeah. nothing good. I'm like, the fuck you... T- this is genuinely one of the healthiest filmmaking right. years we've had in decades, where, like, mainstream stuff was just great and I got awards, and people, everybody liked it. I think people are mad that, like, woke cult- culture forced them to watch movies with Asian people, and they're all masterpieces. 
Yeah, it's, well, yes. And also, <laughs> yeah, it's like a gatekeeper snobbery where it's like, and I'm a little guilty because I was like, could we not have given Spielberg director where it's like, oh, well, the directors I wanted to get awards aren't getting awards. And I'm like, well, that's kind of good, though. Like, nobody need Spielberg's legacy is secure. Scorsese's right. legacy is secure. They don't need to make, they don't need to prove anything else. Exactly. Like, Amazon and, like, Netflix or whoever will still give them money to make their stuff. Maybe just not how you personally want it, but they will still right. get to make things. Like... And especially for, like, all the doom and gloom. And this is kind of what I've been talking about, like, on sort of, like, our side tangents. For all the doom and gloom about Marvel and the state of things, I'm like, the fact that Top Gun Maverick and Avatar Shape of Water were nominated for Best Picture, and everyone kind of agrees that was the right decision. Right. And everything, everywhere, all at once went from indie darling to actual kind of blockbuster. Right. And the fact that, like, Spielberg's back and, like, you know, we all, like, we have a wide range of artistry, like... It, this is great. Like, filmmaking is really in a healthy place right now. And right. isn't that nice for a yeah. change? <laughs> right. Like, even in the animated, even in the animated category, I'm like, all five of these films are good. This isn't yeah. one of those years where, like, ah, we're really, who, why did we put that there? Did right. you just put that there because it had DreamWorks on it or something? Exactly. Right. Yeah, I was like, looking at that eating. category. What, what else was in that? Um, Marcel the Shell and Puss in um, Boots. And um, Sea Beast, which is on Netflix, and which was, is... I'm like, if that's your weakest one. Right. And I'm looking at these like, oh, man, I like all these films. <laughs> right. I mean, I get a little persnickety because Marcel with a Shell has a lot of live action in it. But I'm like, I don't right. know. It, you want to get it in somewhere. And this is the one category that it's easiest. All right. I can live with this. Yeah. Isn't Marcel with a Shell kind of stop motion? Well, the show is stop motion, but there's like live action elements. Gotcha. Like, I'm not going to be a, I'm not going to be a big baby about it. Right, right, right. Back to your regular scheduled programming. Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Boom. Yes. For some reason, I just decided all of the moon characters are my favorite. This and Moon Knight. I mean... My two guys. That's completely valid. That would make perfect sense. Are you familiar with the comic at all? Um, no. Not really. Although I feel like... This show reads like a comic, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I sort of feel um, after having seen it, I feel like I've read the comics. Which is funny because it it has a little bit to do, but not that much to do mm. with the original comic. But at the same time, this kind of feels like a this kind of feels like the MCU, like how the MCU took Kamala Khan and basically like cleaned up her origin story. Yeah, um, this kind of feels very similar. Both because they were both originally Inhumans. Um, sort of the same event that gave Kamala her powers is how Lunella got her powers. Mm. And then she runs into Devil Dinosaur and realizes she can telepathically talk to him. Right. Which I do love. They do an episode that alludes to that. Right. But they're like, eh, it's kind of dumb. Um, so, yes. Uh, Lunella Lafayette, a 13-year-old super genius living in the Lower East Side with her family running a roller rink. Um one day while working on a project that she believes is a power generator that could give clean energy to the Lower East Side, she inadvertently creates a wormhole that brings Devil Dinosaur, who's existed for, like, I think he was, like, in the 50s. Jack Kirby made him. Really? Uh, just, yes, big-ass red dinosaur. That's all. T-Rex, but red and horns. That's yeah. all you need to know. And realizing that she, combining her super tech with a dinosaur, she can be a superhero. There you go, Yeah. I do think this is like the embodiment of 
like something we've talked about in terms of like racial bias in art and creation because like when you stop and think about it this should have been a show uh, like she should have had a show in production in 26 like out right after she was made because it's right. like teenage superhero always a hit robin shazam uh spider-man kamala khan yeah uh like literally never fails and by that dinosaur. point i feel like the mcu had kind of proven that its audience likes a scientist right at that point you have like three or four like super science bros in, right like the house exactly. um, how much did you know how much did you know about this show going in because i'm i really really <laughs> nothing I'm yeah gonna, no yeah, because this was kind of my, like, big uh, bugaboo. Like, this was my thing that I kept hyping up because it was announced back in, like, 2019. And Yeah. I just, like, everything that I knew about it going in or just things that you have sent to me or told me about it. And I remember, I've been, like, excited about it, but I certainly have not done any prior homework to right. actually see it. <laughs> I was really worried it got canceled. Like, it was just quietly yeah. going to be one of those things they killed to, like, make COVID ends meet. Mm-hmm. But then you watch a show and it's like, oh, no, this is why it took five, like, six years to right. make. Uh, it is all on screen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, when we were talking about this a while ago, maybe not a while ago, I forget when you mentioned this, but you kind of mentioned some comparisons here to the Proud family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely tried to look at it through that lens. Um, for context, I have not completed all of the episodes um, that are up right now, but I have seen a good handful um, in preparation for this episode. But um, I would agree with um, with comparisons to the Proud family um, in sort of like this definitely has the energy um, or should I say, you can tell that people of color actually made this and it's not. You yes. can always tell the difference between people of color written by white people and people of color writing from their own point of views, making characters that are that are people that they know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this Proud Family was certainly that way. Um, from a design perspective, I mentioned this to you um, when we were talking about Proud Family that and this is sort of more of its like of its notes that it kind of takes from comic book physics, but that in the Proud Family, a lot of its humor is like physical comedy that is like cartoonish, Looney Tunish, like right. somebody getting flattened by an anvil type comedy, and um, it this this has a lot of of that essence as well. I feel like that's why it sort of, the pacing is sort of similar to, to the proud family because there's a lot of like bombastic kind of bouncing off the walls energy. Um, that is that, that feels controlled and focused when is appropriate. Um, but yeah, I, you know, couldn't really ask for more, um, in terms of diversity and representation, um, not just for people of color, but for, uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community as well. Right. It is, yeah, it's like, and we've used this term before, it's incredibly well observed in so many different avenues. Um, uh, Lawrence Fishburne is one of like the big creative uh, people behind it. Hmm. Um, you know, it's an incredible, like, you know, it's incredibly diverse cast and an incredibly diverse creative team, a lot of whom worked on Proud Fan, like worked on a lot of different 
like shows oh, wow. throughout the sort of our era of um, mm-hmm. Disney Channel. Um, for me, especially in terms of like, well, I will say in terms of like the representation being well observed, I would say it almost kind of feels like I w- what I wanted Miss Marvel to be. And while I like the direction they took Miss Marvel, for the most part, like. The fact that it had a very movie structure and had to have, like, this big sweeping epic story that goes, like, multiple countries and, like, is dealing with, like, like an evil secret society, it didn't mm-hmm. let it, like, I don't know, it, it, like, I like that so much of this is centered around her community. It's about protecting her community. It's about, you know, why this community matters. And that is especially clear in how well observed its depiction of the Lower East Side is. And mm-hmm. yes... Did Carter push this so we can talk about New York some more? Apparently, mm-hmm. I have a reputation for talking a lot about New York, ladies and germs. Yeah. Um, but I'll do it anyway. Like, for me, like, what sold me immediately was the opening... Like, the first episode opens with this really upbeat, poppy song where she's rollerblading through the, um... Rollerblading through her the Lower East Side. And I'm just like, oh my god, this looks just like it. Like... When I was a junior, I got to live um, around Canal Street, which is, like, the heart of Chinatown, right next to Little Italy. Like, that's the Lower East Side. Like, I was 10 minutes away from the Brooklyn Bridge. And it is scary how accurate it is to that community. It is scary how perfectly they got, like, the crowdedness of the streets, how they got the street signs perfect, like the food markets. Um, the the fact that every time she goes into a park, I'm like, oh, that's Sarah. Roosevelt is it park. fair like, to say that? Excuse me. Is it fair to say that that's like a Marvel quality to um, use real places as opposed to being like, welcome to Townsville. I mean, that is for me. That's always been the big pull of Marvel over DC. That it's like, oh, superheroes can be real and live in your town, but mm-hmm. mostly New York, um, right? <laughs> and, and yeah, like New York is the hub of like Marvel, and I appreciate <laughs> right. that they. Like, my favorite Marvel things are the things that respect that. And it's like, yeah, this is, like, the hub for all of these incredible heroes. Right. Um, for, for me, the episode that really shook me was um, she has to fight a villain named Abyss at the Feast of San Gennaro. Like, she, Abyss is trying to, like, lure her into a fight. So she attacks... The Feast of San Gennaro is, like, this very big holiday event. Like, it goes on for, like, a week in Little Italy um, based around this saint named, well, San Gennaro, Um who, I don't remember exactly all the things he did, but he was executed by the Romans, and it was a big deal that the blood, someone put some of his blood in a vial, and it never dried. So that was, like, miraculous. That was one of his miracles. Anywho, like, it is eerie how perfectly they captured that one little event in town. Because it's, like, an event. Right. Like, they'll put up lights everywhere. Booths will fill the street for a week. They get a freaking uh, uh, Ferris wheel oh, that's wow. just in the middle of, like, a New York street. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, wow, this is... it. Like, it felt like... It was nostalgic in a way that I really, yeah. really liked. Um, I f- um, what you were saying about like sort of the well observedness of like the f- the these characters in this town that they live in for for this family to kind of orbit around, literally to orbit around a roller rink, um, is kind of my favorite element of the show. Um, something about like that being like the epicenter of of this family, and it and it being mm-hmm. their business and like way of life um it's not only like there there are so many things i have to say about that one detail um but it it adds to like sort of the the cozy domesticity of it while also feeling like kind of a blend of like in my notes here i have like 
it it perfectly marries the sort of blast from the past influence that her parents and and grandmother have like kind of perfectly married to her very like soaked in gen z culture that she is it's kind of like the perfect melting pot so to speak for right um these like different generations which i feel like disney channel shows children's shows in general struggled to do that and like kind of really to like a corny degree steep themselves in like whatever the youth culture is and that's kind of like it right like i like yeah you're absolutely right like i like that so much of this show is like kind of retro yeah the fact that she's her like main modes of transportation are rollerblades mm-hmm. like she has a mixtape that plays often plays like r&b or funk like her theme song is like very sort of r&b inspired yeah like they have a version on the soundtrack that's like 70s style um like even the roller rink yourself it's like yeah this thing has been here for Mm -hmm. decades and yeah it's such a charm yet at the same time it has like the diversity and like sort of like the slang of a modern like modern kids right exactly and you know what it reminds me of? Um, I couldn't help but notice that she, like, d- in while well, she's not at school or with, like, her friends, um, she's often the only child in a place, mm-hmm. which, like, is why her lifestyle feels kind of retro at times. Because that's exactly what my childhood was like. Like, I am an only child, but I was often the only kid in, like, a room of adults all the time, which meant that I was, like, so, listening to a lot of, like, old music and, like, a lot of my pop culture references are, are from, like, the 60s and 70s and 80s because I spent a lot of time with just adults when I was a kid. And I feel like that nice. I can see that in this, in Lunella. I've never really thought about that, but that's so interesting. I never thought about the fact that you don't, like, you have, like, all this time in the day where you're not bouncing off of other people, especially for us or like our childhood started pre-social media and then like yeah. only got integrated as we were in high school and college. Right. But yeah, and it's just like that sense of place. Like for me, the best episodes of Miss Marvel were the ones that were just in her community. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the ones directed by the same two guys, like the first, second, and final. Right. Where I'm like, yeah, whoa, protecting the community. And this show is like, hey, what if that was just the whole thing? And every episode was, like, a little episode in that story. Right. Or a little personal story about Lunella. Like, oh, this episode, she gets feels self-conscious about her hair for picture day and right. tries to change it. It doesn't go well. <laughs> Lunella is voiced by Diamond White. I just... I think they do such a good job, because it's such a tough balancing act to do, like, a science kid. Yeah. Like, there have been... Think about how many science kids there have been in, like, Disney... There's always the smart kid in, like, Disney Channel live-action and animated movies, and it's so hard to get that in a way that feels organic and natural and likable. I think they do such a good job with her being, like, oh, yeah. Well, one, I appreciate that she's not just good at everything, and she doesn't, like... I don't know. It's so easy to do science kids where it's, like, oh, they're antisocial. They think they're above Mm, everyone else. It's, like... No, Lunella loves people. She's just, right. like, ha- only has her handful of reference pools to talk to people from. Right. You know, I recently saw a, a video. Um, goodness, I gotta start taking better notes when I'm, like, on YouTube watching all these things. Because <laughs> then I would say who's the name of the person who made this wonderful video about why um, it seems that all black superheroes are have electrical powers. Um, <laughs> which they do. And there's a, there's a reason why. 
Um, it's not a good reason. It's like it's not even interesting. It's just like it's just typical like Stanley thinking he can outdo another competitive like competing comic book um, by just copying them. Really? <laughs> and and then yeah, it's like that's literally the reason that that it seems that like there are a bunch of black superheroes that do electrical stuff because like one comic book was like, hey, we can do one of those. And then another comic book publisher was like, how about we do one too? And then that's how they all came to be. Yeah, I mean, it really is hard to grapple with sometimes. Look, we love Stanley. Yeah. <laughs> great man, did a lot of great things. But at the same time, it is really hard to parse that so many of our, like, uh, black, or just characters of color were made by a bunch of, like, stoned-out white guys yeah. who were well-meaning but didn't necessarily have their thumb on the pulse of no. uh, yes, culture. certainly not. On that front. No. Um, um, which... I do think the advantage Lunella and Kamala have is they both were made in, like, 2015. Yeah. So, like, you know, they actually had a diverse pool of writers right. to write them. <laughs> right. But I couldn't help but feel like she also f- somehow falls into that category. Because I feel like a lot of, like, you know, there are shows like The Proud Family where it is about a black family. But I feel like in other cartoons that the black character is often made the genius. Like in really? in Fairly Odd Parents, there's AJ who was like this kid genius. In Kim Possible, Wade um was the gadgets guy. Are so, we cracking a conspiracy here? Yeah. I think we are. <laughs> oh my god, you're right. Yeah. And, and so it's interesting that she is like a, this prodigy, really. Yeah, that is, huh, that is interesting. I never noticed that before. Yeah, I really didn't either until I started making notes for this episode and I was like, you know what? <laughs> I'm starting to, I'm starting to do some math, okay? <laughs> I I do think it's interesting, like, I don't know. I Like, I really like how they flesh out the entire family. It's something mm-hmm. we mentioned with Craig of the Creek. Son of a bitch. Craig of the Creek is also like the know-it-all of the group because he makes maps of motherfucker. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. There's another one. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, how they like really flesh out the whole family really well. Like none of the other family, like they're all intelligent, but they're not like super geniuses and they right. all have like their own little like sort of interests. Like, Mm -hmm. Adria, her mom, is, like, in, like, she runs the sort of sound system at the rink, so she's, like, a a DJ. DJ. Yeah. Her father is, like, a wannabe handyman, but horrifically, well, he's accident-prone, but he means well. Right. Um, (laughs) Lunel's grandmother is, like... 100 reference points, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very well. I love Nella's mother, or grandmother, seems to immediately crack that, oh... Um, a super smart little black girl's flying around um, the same neighborhood we live in. Huh, I wonder who that could be. I love that she's like, yeah, she's like, I don't know. I like that she does the Aunt May bit um, of right. like grandmotherly advice, but it's clearly like, you better tell me that you're Moon Girl soon because this is getting ridiculous. Right, yeah. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for that because watching this, I was like, you know, I think my family would recognize me in a heartbeat, I'll be honest. <laughs> You'd like to think, right? Right. Like, it'd be concerning if they didn't. Right. All she does, all she does is put her hair in a bun. I mean, it's not much of a disguise I, she's wearing. It's not even really a bun. She just kind of shoves it into the helmet and just naturally goes Yeah. There. 
and I, I don't yeah I think I I think I'd get caught on the first go so I don't know but yeah and I also like I, the show also just does a good job of like giving them all their moments to shine right like, the only member of the family who really hasn't gotten an episode to themselves is the grandfather uh pops mm-hmm. who's like you know, he's the only one they haven't, like, I feel like once they give him an episode, I'll feel like he's a little more fleshed out. Like, right. he's likable, but he doesn't really have his, like, distinct, like, yeah. moveset yet, as, for lack of a better word. Yeah. And I guess but, this is still in, it's still early, you know? Oh, yeah. We're only, like, ten episodes in. Right. Um, particularly for me, the, um, I don't know if you watched this episode, but there's an episode where she's, like, Lunell's trying to get out of cleaning and, like, the quote-unquote boring stuff. So she makes an app that lets her, like, effectively time jump. Like, create basically like an ad skip. Interesting. And then, by the end of the week, her family members are referencing all of these fun things they together. And, like, you know, she's... One, I love the episode because it has this, like, cosmic horror element of, like, wait, what happened? Like, basically realizing you just don't know what happened for an entire week. Right. Um, but, but also, so much of it is centered around her father and just being like, oh, I think Lunella is finally growing past that phase where she loves to hang out with her dad. You know, that's kind of hard for me to deal with. And, like, the finale, like, the sort of musical crescendo of the episode is her, like, trying to, basically trying to go back in time and flying through all these memories as, like, his favorite song, Just the Two of Us, is playing. And I'm like, wow, you really, like, you pushed out this goobus of a character really, really well. Yeah. Um... And, you know, that reminds, like, kind of segueing slightly into, like, what I wanted to talk about in terms of, like, story and and plot here. Um, I really appreciate, because with superheroes and with Marvel and translating them into, like, a, a kid main character, like, the stakes can be extremely high and the villain can be, like, extremely scary and, like, result in death. But I just appreciate how, like, mundane, the like, all of the conflicts that she gets in, like, into, the root of them is so domestic. I like that all of her stories start out with her being like, oops, I broke something valuable and I gotta fix it. Or, like, someone online said something mean to me. Like, I right. love that the root of, of all of these journeys that she goes on is, like, it feels very rooted in in tween age reality well yeah that's my whole well that was my whole thing about why i wouldn't want to put spider-man the avengers i'm like you're not sending this child into a war zone against ultron like guys what are we doing here that's ridiculous this guy is like fighting bank robbers and like the shocker yeah and i do think what also helps is like her villains are delightfully like they're intimidating but they're kind of all like I don't know. They're all, like, delightfully, like, C-tier villains in terms of threat. Yeah. Like, the most threatening villain she mid, faces... As the as I believe yes. the kids say. She'll say that. Like, yeah. and I like... And partially, I also like that a lot of them are connected to MC... Like, Marvel stuff in general. Like, her first villain is uh, Miss Dillon, who's uh, Electro's daughter. So she has lightning powers, and she's draining the neighborhood, which is causing businesses to get run out. Right. Um, effectively, inadvertently, you know... Well, semi-vertently gentrifying the neighborhood. Right. Like, uh, there's a symbiote named Siphon who, like, siphons off negative energy and starts bullying her. I like, so I like it's that It's like, one. oh, it's a symbiote, but not, um, like, you know, one of the big ones. Right. Um, the guy who voices, um, or, like, um, Abyss, who's, like, a heritage villain. And she's like, you know, I'm not really into this. Honestly, I'm only doing it because my, like, parent, my mom was a villain and my grandma was a villain. Mm. So it's like... 
oh, that connects to Lunella's problem of not being able to speak up for herself. Right. Um, yeah, like, I like that, the, one, the villains do a good job of, like, being whatever they need to be for the specific, like, domestic situation. But also, like, none of them I'm, like... The only one I'm, like, really, like, oh, my God, she's going to die is in the first one. But the first episode, of course, has to have the biggest stakes. Right, yeah. Just to prove that she can uh, do it. Yeah. And that's why you have a dinosaur who, like... There you go. I don't know. I Like, I was on the fence about Devil Dinosaur at first because I'm always, like... I hate the trope of, like, oh, this animal acts like a dog. Yeah. Oh, it doesn't work here. You know what? I'll be honest. Like... A dinosaur sidekick does pull me out of the reality of the show. As much as I would love to like buy in, as as we say, as, as our, our favorite phrase around here, buying into the magic, I don't know that I love Devil Dinosaur as a as a sidekick. Or, or I should say like I don't know that I believe it. And I, and I say that because going back to what we just talked about, about her being, like, found out by her family, like, how is a, how does a dinosaur be, like, get spotted in the city and, like, the National Guard is not called? Well, one thing I do like is they acknowledge that this is, like, in a Marvel universe. Like, it's not necessarily the That's MCU, true. but it's established that the Avengers are a team. Right. It's established that S.H.I.E.L.D. is running around. I do think there is some understanding of okay. like it's the it's the bit where we're talking about Eternals where it's like yeah there's a giant red alien in the sky <sighs> okay yeah but uh, I got milk and eggs in my Mondays, car so yeah yeah I, I gotta uh, my ki- I gotta pick up my kid from daycare yeah uh, they're closing early today s- for the snow so uh, you know someone someone will figure that one out for us right <laughs> um, yeah, I, like, I go back and forth. I do love the, I don't know, I do love the trope of, like, the bigger a character is, the better they are inexplicably sneaking around. Where I'm yeah. like, how does this guy fit anywhere? How does, right. he, get, <laughs> how does he do anything? With, especially with his stubby little arms. Like, right. how does he even sneak up on, like, in the first episode, like, they have their, like, falling out. Because I would say the first episode is kind of like a mini-movie. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, Lunella's like, I have to take him home. He, he doesn't belong here. He's got to go back. So we think Devil Dinosaur is gone. And right when Lunel is about to get iced, he somehow sneaks up behind both of them and roars. And I'm like, girl, my dude, you are several tons. Your feet feet cause earthquakes. Right. Can I say randomly, my, I think my least favorite trope in storytelling of any kind in film and TV is the, like, like faking that you're angry at your animal sidekick to like get them to abandon you (laughs) i don't i don't hate it but it is like i'm like this is such a (laughs) cul-de-sac for me it's just annoying because like i hate cul-de-sacs in writing like i hate when i'm like and a part of that's like i will say the show is on the spectrum of like disney channel shows it's like okay owl house is the most like young adults like young yeah like 20-something show. Then Amphibia is kind of nicely in the middle, and I would say Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur kind of skews a little younger. Um, like, it, find, it I'd say it has a good balancing act. Like, its themes are very much geared toward young adults, but a lot of its, like, sort of plotting and tropes are more right. for, like, younger kids. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, for a little kid, this is going to be emotionally riveting, but as a grown-ass adult dunking on a children's a piece of, like, kids' entertainment, I'm like, 
all right, let's, can we, can we, let's get them back five but minutes? It's like what is it? Right, yeah, here we go. Okay, yeah. Let's see how long it takes for him to come back. Yeah, and that's what I, me complaining about cul-de-sacs is like me being an adult and understanding how lit- art Story and like media works. works. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but I don't know. I, I like, I, I've really warmed up to Devil Dinosaur. One, because I like that in the first episode they lean into the idea that on his like home world which i'm assuming is supposed to be like the savage lands which if you haven't read marvel comics they do i guess they kind of do the hollow earth idea of like there's a world inside the world that's just all dinosaurs and mm-hmm. like king kongs and what what not right um and devil dinosaur is supposed to be like one of the baddest guys rolling around there right like i like that his like lunella like has figured out his language and it's like his real name is like the destroyer of worlds yeah. who will burn it all and it's like <laughs> I love the trope of like, you know, the, the like the character who like the out fish out of water character who's like supposed to be really intimidating and stuff, but in this world they're just kind of a dubus. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you watch the episode where they bring in a hamster? They get the class pet. I haven't gotten to that one yet. No. That one is uh, that's one the one that really sold me on Devil Dinosaur because it's the it's again it's the Disney Channel trope. Oh, he gets jealous, but then he's dreaming about doing the intro of the show again. Oh my and gosh. like Lunella's just hanging out with the hamster. So then when it cuts to the bit where they meet up in the intro, it's just Devil Dinosaur sadly sitting by himself in the basement. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, that's really good. I will say, I also love how this show acknowledges it's a show, but not in like a yeah. obnoxious clawing way. Right. Um, like the best example of that is the Beyonder who, uh, like the first bunch of episodes ends with a character called the beyonder and that's what got me like i'm like okay i'm watching this now like i'm watching every episode that comes out of mm-hmm. this um lawrence fishburn basically gets to as someone described it go full hamill he voices well one because i'm just a sucker for any of the dumb space character like i'm such a sucker for the you know the co- you know the, the the collector the grand master like i yeah. love all these marvel characters that are just like dumb high the beyonders things. what's what are they called what's what are they called? The the three, um, the ones that like know everything. Oh, uh, uh, the Watchers yes. or the Living Tribunal. The Watchers. The, yes, like that kind of stuff. Like mm-hmm. I love that. That there's just a bunch of weird guys out in space who just have very specific. Who jobs. wear robes and they're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like like I like the Beyonder. They do. That's where they lean most into like the comic booky style of like, oh, this is just shapes and motion and color. Mm-hmm. He has Kirby dots as his like power base. And for me, like, because anytime a villain's introduced, Lawrence Fishburne, like, gives a little narration of, like, oh, they fell into a vat of toxic waste. I and then you realize, really like, like, oh, that it's him. Element. Yeah. I, I like that when they weren't explaining it, when it was right. just, like, a comic booky thing you do. Right, um, yeah. And then when they give it a in-universe plot explanation of, like, oh, the Beyonder was sent to Earth to, like, study humans and figure out if we're worth living. And he's <laughs> happened to focus in on, like, the smartest person he could find. Yeah, these are his notes. Yeah. Yeah, so then in future episodes when he does it, he'll literally just pop his head into the corner or, like, pause the film. And I'm like, great, brilliant. Yeah. That's, like, perfect fourth wall breaking, no right. notes, great job. Um, and I will say on that note, would you, I would argue that the show almost does the whole comic booky style thing better than Into the Spider-Verse. Spider-Verse? I was going to compare it to Spider-Verse as well. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I earlier I mentioned about, like, comic book physics kind of sort of knowing no bounds here. Um, the design of this is really amazing. That's that's why I said that I felt like I've, I feel like I've read a comic um, because of right. that narration. Like it, for those of you that have never read a comic before, like, yeah, there are just like 
um, parts of, of text of explanation that are not like word bubbles or said by anyone in particular um, that are just a part of the story that are just written on the page. They're just context. Yeah. They're, yeah, their backstory and stuff like that. Or like I love um, when like a character will mention a name and there'll be an asterisk and then like there'll be a, a footnote that's like oh, yeah. seen in an episode. Read. Yeah. Read this. Yeah. <laughs> read this one. Read issues 42, true believers. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, and I I just, um, I love how much of the comic book storytelling elements interact with the characters, how many, like, mm-hmm. onomatopoeias and, like, thought bubbles, like, actually bounce off of someone. Like, I forget, um, in the second episode where the, um, the symbiote is, like, <laughs> calling her names or something like that, one of them, I think he says, like, five head at her, and it like, literally, like, comes out at her and like smacks her on the head (laughs) like there's so like I love um seeing them interact with the box with Mm. the space with the screen with um I think that's kind of what what separates it from Spider-Verse is that in Spider-Verse all of the comic book elements were for our sake only and I love that they sort of are like interacting with their own book yeah, I was reading somewhere that one of the animators was really inspired by Calvin and Hobbes, mm. and I think that's a perfect way of describing it, because Calvin and Hobbes does also have that light element of they kind of know they're in a, like, they kind of acknowledge they're in a comic, but not always. Mm-hmm. Like, they kind of play with the physical space, but not always. Yeah. And, like, it's always the right amount that it doesn't feel like, oh, this is just the, you know, this is the one trick you have up your sleeve. Right. It's like, not She-Hulk, oh. like, where yeah. she's like, on the next page, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Yeah. It's that level that makes me laugh, like, get excited every time they do it, where I'm like, yeah. hey. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and also just, like, it really is, like, amazing how good the Spider-Verse energy works in 2D, because you can lean into the graphic element of it. Like, so many times, there'll only be one person moving, and everyone else will be frozen, and you're like, well, that's normal. That's exactly how it should look. Right. Or even just, like, yeah, like, with certain characters, how it literally just becomes shapes. Like, yeah. Like, we get down to, like, the bare-bones graphical elements of everything. I also love that certain locations are monochromatic. Like, there's, like, a monochromatic, like, palette for mm-hmm. the roller rink for school. For, like, and, like, the roller rink is, like, this green, lime green color. And so it's, like, sometimes she's the only one that's, like, in real color and, like, the background of the roller rink, everyone in the back, that everyone else of the roller rink is all in green. Like, um, the, you know what I was going to mention, um, that reminded me a lot of Spider-Verse weirdly was the sound design of this. It is like, it's really impactful. Um, another, like of the many like nerdy film stuff that we talk about, um, rarely do we get to mention like, Often we're talking about things with poor sound design, but this um, actually incorporates sound design much like into the Spider Verse, uh, into the impact of the fight sequence. Even not even just the fight sequence, but like in mid conversation when there's some kind of like big revelation, we get all of these sort of like sort of big yet kind of muted sounds. It's it's hard to like describe with words a sound. <laughs> Right. I'm realizing I'm like, yeah, I'm like trying to think in my head. I'm like, how do I describe this? Yeah, I can't. It, it fundamentally understands like how to use all of the tools in the toolbox for dramatic or comedic effect. Mm-hmm. It understands 
like exactly the right amount it's like a comic it knows exactly the right amount of sound or the right amount of image or like what needs to be in focus or what can be out of focus or what needs to be in motion or what doesn't need to be in motion right. to create the emotional effect that it wants I like again I talked a little bit about UPA back in our Charlie Brown episodes and this is like this is like oh one of those but like given a speed boost to the year 2023 in terms of just like oh this is all of the stuff they were playing with where it's like oh we are breaking down animation to its purest elements of like motion and image and sight and sound and color right like every piece of like everything is going to be distilled to its simplest and most like pure form and we're just going to throw it at you and the best example of that is how it uses sound and particularly music like it, there's basically like kind of one little musical sequence per show mm-hmm. that usually the entire color palette or the entire context changes. Right. If you've seen one, if you've seen one thing from the show, you've probably seen the childish Gambino fight scene, mm-hmm. and yes, every episode has something like that, if not better. Each in terms of like each episode, like it, each episode's final boss scene happens in like a music video. Yes. In like a fifth dimension, like neon music video where everything every person even people that aren't in the fight are like colored in this like neon scape yes and like and yet it works it makes so it makes complete emotional sense they also described it as like uh, they were like oh baby driver was a big inspiration for us where it's like no the music isn't control like the music fits the scene action, not the music dictating the action. Right. So like everything kind of matches graphically and sound wise. And yeah, like you literally go into like almost dream space where you're like, well, this makes a hundred percent emotional sense based off the music, even though we're not in any kind of reality anymore. Uh, For me, I don't know if you got to listen to the very last episode in the lineup, but basically moon girl gets paired up with these other two, like tech, this tech bro couple who are like, oh, we hate noise, so we created this sound muffling noise. And basically, they, like, they kind of get, they start, you know, they start buying out the neighborhood. They're like, oh, we'll donate a lot of money if you let us, like, clean up the town a little bit. So they, like, push out everything, like, weird. They cancel the local block party. So then Moon Girl teams up with her mom, who doesn't know she's Moon Girl, to, like, put the block party back on. And literally, there's a bit where the villains create a giant sound canceler that turns the entire frame black and white and cuts out all of the sound. And basically, Moon Girl wins by, like, stamping on the ground enough to create a, like, motion wave. Right. And then rides that up to smash the robot. And I'm like, again, this, like, if, for me, that is just, like, the most perfect... If you were concentrating the idea of animation into, like, a little vial and drinking it, it's that. Can we talk about these, like, um, transition cards in between where they're just like, hey, look at this art. I'm still, that's the only part of this where I'm like, if I could ask one question, I'm like, so what are those? Yeah, they, they just look like New York architecture, but like in sort of impressionist abstract uh, paintings. And they, they succeed in literally in what I just said and being like, hey, look at this. Right. <laughs> and I'm For like, a minute, oh, I thought they look were at so- that. And I'm kind of thinking about it for a second. That's interesting. Yeah. And then here we are. I thought it was supposed to be like a subway car window because it's got that kind of overly round shape. Yeah. But then I'm like, that can't be. Is that what they're going for? I don't know. 
I don't know. And maybe I'm like, okay, you know, and you're right. Like in New York and in subways, there is a lot of just random art around. Oh, yeah. So maybe that's the effect of like, oh, you're moving through your day. You're going to have to look at some art. So here it is. Well, I will say I will briefly go into my thought of I have a growing suspicion that they are going to try and include this in the MCU. How? Or, okay, so this is a lot of tan tangential evidence this isn't like i don't have i don't have like hardcore evidence but one thing that really stuck with me was uh and i wish i could source this a little better but there's some discussion that bringing in the beyonder was kevin feige's suggestion and Mm. the beyonders uses kirby dots and pointedly when he's using like his most powerful moves that will basically erase the universe they have the same color palette as the Kirby dots from Into the Spider-Verse whenever there's some kind of multiversal shenanigans. Like that pinkish neon blue, like that pink blue neon color-y thing. Like whenever the portals are made. Like mm-hmm. at the end of the movie. You, you've seen the ending of Spider-Verse. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is the third and final Spider-Verse film being called? Beyond the Spider-Verse. Oh... Now, why would they do that? And this is where I wish we had video attached to this. Because I'm doing the Brian Windhorst movie. Why would they do that? Oh my god! It wasn't called that originally. They changed the title. It was originally just going to be Across the Spider-Verse Part 2. Wow. Um... I also wanted to mention that um, the animation company behind this uh, is Flying Bark Productions that worked on Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles mm. and is also working on an Avatar like follow-up show. That makes show. a lot of sense, actually. Yes, they they are the masters of, like, one, they are the masters of very intricate, elaborate, anime, like, action animation. Yeah. And also, again, they're just masters of, like, figuring exactly the right amount of motion to have in any image to convey every emotion you need to know. Right. Wow. Um, yeah, any uh, closing thoughts as we wrap up this uh, lunar... I was trying to think of a word that started with L, and I just... Lunar... Lunar... Lounge. Um, lunar Palooza? Is that sure. a good one? Um, okay. Um, I, I almost... do love her name is Moon. I like... Right? I'm a sucker for that dumb, like, alliteration stuff. I like that stuff. her name is Moon, and then her... Her reasoning for choosing Moon Girl is essentially shrug emoji. Like, <laughs> yeah, like her favorite scientist was called Moon Girl, so she's like, "I'll take I like that, that name. Thank you very much." Yeah, um, like, and no, and no reference made to her own name being like a lunar reference. That's purely coincidence. Yeah, and yeah, well, that's it. Always annoys me. That's I hate to play that card from No Way Home, but I'm one of those people who is annoyed that they laugh at the name Doctor Otto Octavius. Like. Parker, my bro, your name is Peter Parker. You yeah. hang out with Come like on. you know Bruce Banner. Like everyone has alliteration. Right. In town. <laughs> Just sit down, sir. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, anywho, I'm sorry, I interrupted. Fi- no. F- final thoughts. Um, I thought this would have this would have been suitable for um, a Black History Month talk, but we kind of had you know we had a full calendar back in February. But anyway, um, this is a really fun watch and you know i haven't even finished and i can't wait to see like where else this series goes but um these are really easy to digest they're easy to take in um 
if you have access to watching this on like a large screen, I would recommend that. Yes. Um, but it's so funny because I mentioned the sound design is because I watch these on my phone in the gym with my like Beats headphones on. And so the sound design is even like more like chewing five gum, you know? Yeah, I would almost argue even more than some movies. I'm like, this is when you want to see it on the best screen you have, yeah. the best sound system you have, to just appreciate how much passion and creativity went into this. Definitely. I hate to say it, this might be in my top three or four favorite Marvel things currently. I think it's wow. just such a pure and honest realization of why we like these comics. I think it is so delightful and charming. I can't get over how sweet a show it is but also like how actiony a show it is um can i say i think it's the best um i don't know the word for it but like of all of marvel's attempts to like marry itself to a like a to gen z i think this is its best shot at that more so than miss marvel i i think i like this a little more than miss marvel yeah, again, I love Miss Marvel, but this is like right. what I think the most pure version of Miss Marvel would have been. Yeah. For as sure. like a TV if you sell me on Miss Marvel TV show, hell, if you sold me on Miles Morales, like this is the kind of perfect of like super kid in the big city narrative. Right. It's one of the most visually exciting things you'll see all year. It's um it's funny, it's charming, it's sound the sound design is amazing. And yeah, it's a breezy, fun show. You know, I think that might be because her, like... I think that's because the story is driven by her personality more so than her having, like, a mutation or her her life is not dictated by, like, a superpower. And that her life is totally driven by, like, her character. And I do think that's I that's why I think it's one of the secret strengths that they just completely wrote out the inhuman stuff for her and like no she doesn't have superpowers her superpower she's very smart yeah that's enough right and that lets her yeah it lets her the action come to her on her own terms mm-hmm, exactly not as an accident and I think that adds like a nice like it just lets the whole show breathe more honestly right and it lets the show kind of be the most pure version of what it wants to be definitely. Um, I believe the first two episodes are currently available on YouTube for free if you want, like, a little sampler. If you own Disney+, Plus, the first 11 are on, and like I said, there will be more coming soon. It has already been renewed for Season 2, which further adds to my suspicion that this will be a part of Marvel (laughs) going forward. But until the day we... But until the day the Lower East Side is saved once again, I'm Carter. And I'm Sydney. And that was Marvel Minute. Thanks for listening. The Disney Desk is brought to you by Carter and Sydney. Follow us on Twitter at Disney Desk for the latest updates about the show. Want more of the most magical podcast on Earth? The Disney Desk is now on Patreon. For exclusive weekly bonus content from us, go to patreon.com slash Disney Desk and become a patron for as little as $3 a month. Thank you.